So today we'll pick up where we left off um, from verse 13 of Colossians chapter 1 to verse 29, which is the last verse. Um, I will share my Bible here so we are synchronized. And yeah, so who would like to volunteer to read for me today? Yeah, I can read. Okay, awesome. Thank you. So verse 13 to 14 um verse 13 to 14 he says he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sin okay thank you so what's happening in these two verses is that paul is um, revealing to us the content of our hope, because we have we have seen earlier that um, is the quality of our hope that determines the quality of everything else that we receive in Christ, and He wants us to to be laser focused on this hope, and that's why He reveals the content of it, which is that we have been delivered from the power of darkness, and we have been conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of God. Now, the things Paul is saying here is they are quite um, consequential to how he expects us to order our lives. Because, for example, if you don't know that you have been delivered from the power of darkness, it is possible that you might um, subscribe to the power of darkness for your own solution to the problems that you might be facing, which is something that was practically happening here in Colossae, where people were mixing up gods. But if you have been delivered from the power of darkness, you do not have to submit yourself to its authority, to its rulership. You do not have to live your life under the influence of the fear of the power of darkness. And that's on one side. On the other side, you have been conveyed into the kingdom of his son. And during our retreat next year, we would um, unveil more about the concept of sonship in Christ and how the kingdom plays into that. But right off the bat here, we can see that you have been, we've been conveyed into a context. And that context is the kingdom of the son of God. Um, how do you understand the word kingdom? Or how do you understand this new context of the kingdom of the son of his love? Uh, this, is, this is our hope. So it's important that we have a, a good grasp of what it is. I think it's like the context where Jesus is like is Lord and um, everyone or we that are saints are to submit to his authority mm -hmm. I think that's the context and um, Jesus is the center Jesus is the um, I think I don't want to say king of the kingdom but he is the one that is Lord over everything and so we ought to subscribe to his to his leading, that's the way. Exactly. Thank you very much, Steph, for that. Um, the reason Paul is 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 starting like this to introduce us to the content of our hope is that ultimately he wants to show us the author of this hope. And so, like Stephanie said, we have come into the context of the domain of Christ. And that's what the word kingdom is. If you split it into two, one part says king. The other part says dom or short form for domain. So it's the domain of a king and the king is Christ. And um, we have been introduced into that context. What that means is that 
there is an entire destiny for us to walk in. There, there, are, enti there are entire sets of possibilities for us to experience. This is an amazing hope, isn't it? Which is that my life is not, um, I am not unwanted as it were. You know, it's very possible for you to come into a mode of thinking, perhaps because of external manifestations in your life that makes you feel unworthy, unworthy of love, unworthy of care or attention or something like this, or even just unwanted, you know, perhaps because of bad experiences. And you might feel that death might be the best thing for you sometimes, or that there is no discernible purpose to your life. Or you might even be tying the purpose of your life to, to things that do not reciprocate that same investment, right? That you're making in it. What Paul is saying is that there's no need for you to um, hold on to, uh, um, to the validation of men, right? Or the validation of external um, results for you to locate your reality. It says you have been conveyed into a different context. So there's a whole set of possibilities for you. I can assure you there's something that God has for you to do in that kingdom. There is a place for you. It is the domain of a king. There's provision for you. There's a plan for you. And it's important that you have this hope that my context has changed. And the question is, how does someone who was unworthy, because that's what all of us were, as Paul shows subsequently, someone who was unworthy, someone who was unwanted, how do you go from being unworthy and being unwanted to being welcome, to being wanted, to being worthy, to being valuable? That's what the word redemption means. And this redemption was accomplished through his blood. It is through the redemption of Christ that you and I have become worthy. We have become wanted. So if everybody else rejects you, you can always turn to Christ because there is something in him for you. And it was through his blood that he purchased such redemption, which is why we said last week, when we're trying to understand why Paul said that this is the will of God, that you give thanks in all things. If, if your eyes are fixed only on your external circumstances, on the things that are imperfect around you, on the prayer points that have not been answered, it's very likely that you will not find a reason to give thanks. Um, and then you might even question, how, come, how is it that Paul expects us to give thanks in all things? The reason, like we saw last week, that Paul expects that to happen is that he expects that your eyes are fixed on this new domain that you have been brought into, right? And when we took a, a, a sneak peek into that domain from, from Revelation chapter 5, we saw that the reason praise rises and worship rises to the king is because he was slain. He was slain. And when, when we eventually... Um, put off this body of flesh and put on immortality, we're going to realize that everything else that became our possibility was because he was slain. And that's, that's, that fact of history and that reality of the present is sufficient reason to always give thanks because the fact that he was slain means that we have now been accepted into this entire context, into this domain of God. We can enjoy God in a different way. We can enjoy the riches of his grace in a different way. We can enjoy the riches of his glory in a different way. So this is the hope that Paul speaks of, that our context has changed, our reality has changed. I'm not, I'm not as helpless as I look. Um, I'm not as, as um, alone as it were as I look. I'm surrounded. My context has changed. 
And when you read Hebrews chapter 12, um, where the writer of Hebrews begins to tell us that we have not come onto a mountain that can be shaken, that can be shaken. He, he, he shows us some of the elements, some of the functionaries, some of the other entities that exist in the context that we have come into. And one of those entities is what he refers to as an innumerable company of angels. You see, that's our context. That's where we are being brought into. And so if we have been brought into a context of an innumerable number of angels, then you can imagine how powerful your prayer is if you just let go of everything that discourages you from prayer and break through in prayer. Because your context has changed, that's why your prayer can, can affect things. And that's why the enemy himself will try everything he can to prevent you from praying. Because I don't know if, you have, if, you've, if it has happened to you before that your mind can be so overwhelmed, perhaps even your body, everything around you is looking like it's going on a downward spiral until you begin to pray. And then it's as if a window is open in your, in your soul and ventilation from heaven is just poured in. And the things that were um, an obstruction or confusing suddenly become clear. Does, does that happen to you? Yes. And then you, you ask yourself, why did nothing happen when I was not praying? <laughs> did you ask, ask yourself that? How come that it's as if heaven was waiting for me to speak before my, real, before my experience came into sync with my reality? It's because of the context that we have been brought into. He has translated us, he has conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Okay, so from verse 15 to 18, he begins to introduce us to the portfolio of the one who authored this hope. Okay, 15 to 18. Mm-hmm. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Thank you. So that in all things he may have preeminence. So let's try to break it down because a few things are happening in this verse, right? I'm beginning from verse 15. Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, meaning that, of course, when, when he says he's the image of the invisible God, like we're going to see subsequently, he's playing on, um, the creation story we have recorded uh, recorded for us in Genesis chapter one, right? Where um, Elohim said, let us create man in our own image and in our own likeness, right? But he's, he's not only playing on that imagery, he's going beyond it. When he says the image of the visible God, he's basically saying that he's God himself. Because like Paul will see subsequently, like the problem with mixing Christ and any other thing that... Um, purports to be any kind of spiritual solution or God is that if Christ is who he says that he is, then he has to be Lord of all. If he's not, like some people say, if he's not Lord of all, then he cannot be Lord at all. 
And then it, it should be a sign to you that whatever it is that you are mixing with him is a, is a deception. Something has to give here. Someone has to be Lord of all, right? Um, so by, by referring to Christ as the image of the visible God, he says this is, a, this is a bodily expression of God. If you want to see God, you look at Christ. But then he calls him the firstborn over all creation. Um, of course, this, as you can see, is, put, is a potentially problematic verse, verse and historically has been a controversial and problematic verse because this suggests that Christ was created, right? Is that what it suggests to you as well? Yes, firstborn, yes, of all creation. Over all creation, right? And this is, you know, there are some Christian blocks that don't hold the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is one of the verses that, um, that they used to deny that Christ belongs to the Godhead. And not even some Christian circles, some, some let, let me call them Christian cults, right? For example, like Jehovah's Witness, or, and there are many other cults. Some of them um, deny the deity of Christ. They, they deny the divinity of Jesus. And this is one of the scriptures, right? That says that, um, he's the firstborn over all creature. But you know, the good thing is that a verse like this does not exist in limbo, as it were. It does not exist outside of a context, right? And if you look at the very next verse, Paul begins to say that everything, <laughs> everything was created by him. So it's not as if somebody else wrote verse 15, and then and Paul now wrote verse 16. It's the same person who wrote verse 15, who wrote verse 16. So how can someone be created? right, and then still be the creator of everything. And he mentions everything in the physical creation as well as everything in the visible creation, in the invisible creation. He even mentions authorities. That's what powers is here, authorities. He mentions thrones. He mentions dominions, principalities. So he's basically trying to tell you that the, entity, the personality I'm describing is at the highest point of the universe. So Paul certainly is not trying to tell us that Christ was created in the sense that man was created or in the sense that um, everything else was created. And then the question is, what does he then mean by firstborn? So if you have um, a Bible that gives you some notes, you'll notice that a better understanding of, word, of the word firstborn is not chronological firstborn in terms of, okay, he was born first and then every other person was born after him. What it basically means is the first in rank. It, it, it speaks of rank. It speaks of the one who inherits all things. And this is not, this is not strange imagery to, to at least Paul who wrote this letter because in the Old Testament, the firstborn was the one who had a, at least a double portion of the father's inheritance. He was, he was Lord over everything. He may have had 20 to 30 siblings, but the idea of firstborn doesn't necessarily mean that the person in question came out of the womb first, actually. It just meant that in rank, in authority, everything was committed to him. And so that's why, for example, you, um, in the case of Isaac, Isaac had two sons, even though Esau was the older one. Jacob, as far as God was concerned, was the firstborn. And all that God had for his covenant people was invested in Jacob. So firstborn is an issue of rank. So you can read the scripture as what Paul is saying is that he's the first in rank over all creation. He's the, he's the inheritor of all creation, meaning that which inevitably means that he's the one that gives everything its purpose. 
He's the one that gives everything its, its meaning. He's the one that reflects life to everything. That's what firstborn means. He has the one who inherits all things, the one who has the double portion over all things, the one to whom all things submit. Any thoughts on this? I've never seen it in that way, but thank you. Okay, thank you. Yeah. To be honest, the book of Colossians is a mystical book. Um, it would be unfair to say that we understand everything in this book because there is a sense in which Christ is the son of God, even though he's equal with God. Christ calls himself the son of God. In fact, the famous evangelistic scripture that we all know, John 3, 16, says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? At the baptism of Christ, um, the announcement from the Holy Spirit was that this, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So there was rec recognition from the father from heaven that Christ is his son. But that kind of sonship is not the sonship that we understand in terms of um, the way Adam was the son of God. Now, this is Adam is another interesting personality to bring into this conversation at this point, because at least when it comes to the visible creation, Adam, right, was supposed to be the firstborn over the visible creation. In fact, it is the reason why Satan is called the God of this world, because he deceived Adam in the Garden of Eden. And Adam had the stature, the ranking, the authority to cede control of the earth to Satan. That's why Satan is called the God of this world. So at what point, right? did Christ become the firstborn over the visible creation? Because that, that title, that designation was given to the first Adam. The Bible says, let him have dominion. This, this, the, the, the influence of this creation, the, the ability and the authority to command this creation was wielded to the first Adam. So on what, on what grounds did Christ recover that title? of the firstborn over creation? Or is it too technical? I know that it might be. Stephanie? It is technical. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to say on the basis of his blood when he died on the cross, then he reconciled us back to the Father. I'm tempted to say that, but I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. you're, you're actually correct. Oh, I'm also tempted to say before the foundation of the world where they were slain, so... Yeah, he was the eternal son of God before the foundation of the world. But he became the firstborn of the visible creation. And by firstborn, we don't mean the one created first, but the first in rank over the visible creation through the cross. Now, if you remember when God said, Esau, right? I hate and Jacob, I love. That was a picture of Esau was a picture in that scenario of the first Adam. And Jacob was a picture of the second Adam. So that's why God didn't wait for them to be born. God didn't wait for them to choose good or evil before he, before he invested his grace on one. And that's why even though Jacob was the kind of person that had the kind of temperament that should have made him opposite from God. You know, Jacob is the kind of person that God avoids, normally speaking. The guy did everything in his power to ensure that God stayed away from his life. But, but God insisted on him. And um, if we remember when Jacob was blessing 
the children of Joseph, he crossed his hands because he understood that he was standing in that place by virtue of the, of the divine choice of God. He crossed his hands so that Ephraim became the first son and Manasseh became the second, even though Manasseh was born first. And it was a picture of how true the cross, the one who was not chronologically born first, would become first in rank over creation. Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 24, that now is the judgment of this world, and now is the prince of this world cast down. So the prince of this world is the one who was legitimately God over this world. But he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men. So because Jesus was, was a fresh creation of God when he was in um, his mother's womb, Mary's womb, and he was without sin. He had the legitimacy to win back control over the earth. That's why today you can stand and insist on the authority of Jesus over a situation, and you, you can see Satan turn back because Christ is the first in rank over creation. Okay? And if you go beyond the visible creation, which you and I can see, which we understand that is the first in rank, Paul says that um, he was actually the first in rank too over the invisible creation. And then he gives us the structure of the invisible realm. He says that it's a, it's a realm of thrones. There are thrones in that realm. There are dominions in that realm. There are principalities in that realm. And there are powers in that realm. And all things were created through, through him and for him. Now, this is where in ancient culture, they very easily missed the point because they got it correct that in the spirit that they are thrones. And they were able to interface with some of these thrones, that they are dominions, their principalities, and their powers. And so, for example, in ancient Greek Greece, they had the god of different things because they recognized that in the spirit realm, different entities had the, had the capability, for example, to bring rain. And so Paul, dealing with this diversity of belief systems in Colossae, he's saying to them that all of these, all of these entities in the spirit, they find their summation in Christ. They take they take their meaning from him. He's the one, he's the one that gives them the life by which they run. Says they were created through him and for him. One of the great mysteries of this book, one of the great mysteries of the gospel, is that even the evil that Satan works out is, is <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, it is working out for him. Because if you were there at, at Golgotha, at Calvary on that day over 2000 years ago, you will not have believed that anything good could have come out of the son of God nailed to the cross, stuck naked. You will not have been convinced that anything good can come out of it. And anytime we remember the cross, we must realize that, yes, there is evil and suffering in our world. We have questions for God, you know, why has everything not changed? But the testimony of scripture is that whoever is responsible for any kind of subversion, whatever it is, is eventually working out for his purpose. You know, we may not see that purpose always, we may not understand it, but that is the testimony of scripture, right? And Paul goes on to say that he is before all things and in him, all things consist. So this is it, in him, all things take their reference. Like the way to understand this is if there's an architect, right? Who, who goes through the design process of a facility now, everything in the, in the house takes its reference from the architect. He can tell you that this room looks like kitchen to you, but <laughs> that's not the design. That's not, that's not how it was 
um, design in my design is not a kitchen it's a study room for example everything takes its reference from the architect and paul is saying that christ was the architect or is the architect of the invisible creation and of the visible creation and the most important thing to note about christ being the, the architect is that everything gets its purpose from him um, it's important that when when something comes into your life you refer to the reference point you see the kingdom is the reference point the kingdom of christ is the reference point why are you why is god bringing more money into my life that money that's coming into your life it's its reference point is christ and if you try to operate that outside of the reference point that thing may eventually draw you away from christ why why is this person coming to my life for marriage it's important to go back to the reference point why am i doing this job at such a time as this why am i doing this phd everything takes its reference point from Christ. And then Paul shifts from the old creation to the new creation in verse 18. He says he is the head of the body. Of course, the idea of head means that he's the central control system. He's the chief initiator. He's the chief strategist. He's the, he's the one who initiates. It's important that the church <laughs> does not initiate without the head. He's the head of the church. And he now describes the church and uses that word again. He says he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. So can you see what firstborn means? Firstborn here does not, of course, it means chronological firstborn. Christ is the first person who returned from the dead. Um, from the dead. And Lazarus and everybody else was only resuscitated. They returned back to the same. In fact, sometimes you may even feel for them, you know, they came back from wherever it is that you go to when you die. They came back into the same frail physical body with the same infirmities that he had. And when the time was right, they still died again. But Jesus germinated into something different. Friends, the hope of Christianity rising, <laughs> lies in the resurrection of Christ because everything that we're saying is very hard to believe. You know, have you thought about how much mystery there is in Christianity. Virtually everything we call a basic doctrine of Christianity is a mystery, beginning with the incarnation. It takes faith to believe that a woman who did not know a man became pregnant. And sometimes, you know, we take it for granted. We just believe it by faith and move on. But when we go back to the foundation, we realize that there's nothing about Christianity that was easy to explain. If you're going to walk in this path, you're going to walk in it by faith. And, one, and, and the anchor, Paul says that if Christ is not risen from the dead, he says, then you are still in your sins and your faith is pain. The anchor of our faith today is that eyewitnesses saw that the one who was buried, he rose to a different life. And that's what, that's what 2 Timothy chapter 1, I think, says, that he, that he brought life and immortality to light. He, he showcased a different possibility for humanity. He's the firstborn from the dead. And he's the first in rank over the new creation. And the reason God designed it like this is so that he may have preeminence. And so what Paul is saying to the Colossians is when you find Christ, make sure you make him Lord. If, if, he's going to, if, if you're going to enjoy the full benefits of what it means to be in Christ, right? If you're going to enjoy the full benefit of what it means to be in Christ, make sure you make him Lord. You are never going to explore the fullness of all that Christ offers if, if Christ is your second option. 
or if it's even your last resort, or if it's Christ and something else. Make him the center. Make him Lord. When you find him, make him Lord. Because that's his destiny. That's his destiny to be preeminent over all things. Okay. So as we move on, any contribution to this or questions, perhaps? Was it clear? Yeah, for me, it's clear. I mean, the part that really stands out is it is important to make him always take him as reference. Oh, sorry. Take reference from him, you know, and how to apply it to our daily lives. So, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. yeah. So. Yeah. The Bible says in him, all things consist. Just in case you're going through a storm, go to him and find out the reason for the storm. There's something called the law of equivalent advantage. If you can go to the reference point, and find the reason for your, for your trouble, the reason for your trial, then you can walk through that, through the valley of the shadow of death and not be stained by it, not be touched by it. All things, friends, all things. If you want to know the purpose of COVID, all things, all things eventually trace their reference to him. Okay, so, the question then that Paul now addresses is if, if Christ is the center and God has made him preeminent, is Christ sufficient, right? Is because if somebody is the center, then the person has to be enough. If you're telling me not to um, if you're telling me not to subscribe to other means of fulfillment or other means of getting my spiritual needs met, then Christ has to be sufficient. Because if it's only when Christ is sufficient that I can stay with him, right? So that's what Paul addresses in verse 19 to 23. Steph? Okay, verse 19 to 23. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who want, and you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay, thank you. Yes, so going back to verse 19, it says that it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness. So there was nothing about God that was obscured in Christ, nothing of the essence of God, nothing of the glory of God, nothing of the, of the mighty power of God that was obscured in Christ, all fullness dwelt in Christ. If that was not the case, <laughs> as interesting as it sounds, God would have left him in the grave if that was not the case. But his life was found compliant on all, on all counts. He was found to be so full of God that eventually the grave had to lose him and had to let him go. And verse 20 says, and by him to reconcile all things to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, this is also another scripture that um, 
um, um, a section of, I guess, postmodern Christianity that you can call universal Christianity takes um, to its extreme and, misinterpre and misinterprets and leads to what in Christianity you might call heresy. Because Paul says here that <laughs> he, he reconciles all things to himself, right? I guess the interpretation of this that the universalists have used is that eventually all things will be reconciled to Christ, right? Um, including Satan himself, because I, I guess if you need to, if you want to interpret this scripture like that and say all things have to, will be reconciled, all sinners eventually when they suffer for a while for their sins, they will eventually be reconciled to, to, to Christ because um, yeah, they will eventually be reconciled to Christ because you know God is too loving to allow anyone to suffer eternally for sin. And that's what universalism says, which is why um, universalism tries to eventually bring all religions together, claiming that at the end of the day, all things will come under Christ anyway. Um, but that's not what Paul is saying, like we have said. <laughs> Paul is saying quite the opposite, really, that um, this is not a reason for you to mix and match. This is a reason for you to ensure that you are firmly grounded in the one man, because Christ is a man in heaven, in the one man who is Lord over all things. So what do you think this scripture is saying, verse 20? What, what does reconcile mean here? I mean, if it was that verse that said it reconciled us back to God, I can understand that he made peace, brought peace between ourselves and God. But, but you know, to reconcile us to himself, all things to himself, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So as you, as you can see, right, that in, the, in verse 16, Paul had said that all things, right, were made through him, right, and for him. But the book of Hebrews tells us that we do not yet see everything subject to him, even though it was created by him. Because of the fall of man and also the fall of Lucifer, we saw that um, they are currently rebels that are occupying thrones in the heavens whose agenda is not the same with the agenda of the kingdom of God, right? Um, they are currently men upon the face of the earth who's, who were created by God, no doubt, but have even made it their life's pursuit to disprove, at least mentally, the existence of God. Right? And this is one of the things that the judgment of Christ at the end of the day will achieve. Because it is only when God has judged and when he has drawn the line in history between who belongs to that kingdom and who doesn't, that everything will be reconciled to him. So that all of creation, both visible and invisible, will eventually begin to work together into one purpose. Right now, all of creation is not moving in one purpose, <laughs> right? That's why there's so much evil and chaos. But the time is coming when he arrives in his full regalia of judgment that we can see all things reconciled to himself. And the proof that Christ will reconcile all things to himself is that he has reconciled us to himself. So if you want to know whether this is a false hope of the future or this is a reality, think of your own life. As difficult as it was to save you, he has reconciled you to himself. And your life is proof that all things eventually will begin to work towards the one purpose that God has prepared them to work towards. So if you look at your family, 
or if you take an average African family, for example, you might find that perhaps half, half of the family is Christian, the other half is Christian or not Christian, but are involved in some kind of idolatry or some kind of witchcraft. And of course, like the scripture says, anywhere where witchcraft exists, blood is definitely going to flow. People are going to die prematurely and in terrible ways, you know. Um, all of these things are currently antichrist in a sense, right? They are currently anti the purpose of God for that family. But the time comes when someone arises, God smuggles salvation into one heart. And that heart begins to pray, begins to intercede for that family. And what happens is that, is that those who can be saved in that family are saved. <laughs> those who cannot be saved, because there are some who cannot be saved, those who cannot be saved will be cut down from that family. And if that legacy of priesthood is maintained for up to two, two, two to four generations, a time comes when that entire family is reconciled to Christ. That's what Psalm 110 is all about. The Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the agency through which this reconciliation will happen is that your people, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. That's what Paul is saying in verse 21 and 22, that you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked words, he has reconciled you. He began with you. And the way he did it was in the body of his flesh through death. And that he is able to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. I think the old King James says he's able to present you unblameable and unreprovable. Friends, Christ is able to present you at the end of the age, unblameable and unreprovable before God. Do you ever take some time to ponder that? And I've also spent some time talking to some people who tend to take the grace, the doctrine of grace to its extreme. And I notice that sometimes they just quote this verse, right? That he's able to present you holy and blameless and above reproach inside. And they just stop there. Hopefully one thing we have seen reading a difficult book like Colossians is that you cannot cherry pick one verse and make a doctrine or a meaning out of it. Because if, if all you read is verse 22, you can say, you can, come, you can come to the conclusion that a lot of those people come to, which is that he's able to do it. So technically, I'm a sinner. Yes, I can do whatever I like with my life, but Christ will eventually pre <laughs> present me holy unblameable and unreprovable. But that's simply because they fail to read the very next verse, which gives us one of the ifs of salvation. You know, salvation is not totally unconditional. And that is because it, it costs the blood of the Son of God. If, if salvation didn't cost anything, then perhaps it would have been un, completely unconditional. But it costs the blood of the Son of God, and that blood is precious. And God will not um, have you abuse that blood even though it was poured out for you. And so that's why there's an if. The if is not a threat. It's actually an encouragement. It says, if indeed you continue. It means he's saying to you, Stephanie, that if you continue grounded, steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you had, then the fullness of what God has in, in mind for you will surely come to pass. And the, and the culmination, the consummation of that expectation is that at the end of the age, at the end of your life on earth, or when Christ comes, he will present you blameless and without reproach in his sight, if you continue. 
friends, there is so much hope if we continue. I know that sometimes we put in a bit of effort or a lot of effort and we don't instantly, instantly see change, right? Sometimes we even experience some kind of pushback or regressions when we put some kind of energy spiritually. But there's a promise here that if indeed you continue in the faith, if indeed you continue, if indeed you continue. And all of this thing he's, he's talking about up until verse 23 is you in Christ, right? You in Christ, if you continue. Christ has been, Christ has been um, slain for your deliverance. And so if you continue in him, your hope is sure that when you take your last breath, he will present you. He will take care of that one if you continue in him. And I want us to, um, to make up our minds as we go back tonight and say, Lord, I want to continue. I will continue. I know that there is perhaps enough discouragement in my circumstances or in my environment to make me not to continue. But I want to continue. I will continue. Okay? So like we said earlier, this is how God eventually wants to reconcile all things to himself. When he finds a generation, he begins with you. There's so much that is hanging on your work with God. And he's not supposed to make you um, feel under pressure, anxious. It's just the fact that you are God's strategy. You are God's strategy in your family. You are God's strategy in your city. Like we said, your life is not worthless. It's not unwanted. It might look small and even alone, but there is a whole context in which your life matters. And that context is the context of the kingdom of God. And when you look around you as, as you know, beautiful and blessed as many other people look around you, they lack that, that ability to extend the frontiers of the kingdom of God. It has been given to you. And we ought to make up our minds to continue, okay? Any, any thoughts on this? I would like to hear what you think. Any questions? Before we move on. Okay, so I take it that it's clear then. Um, and then we'll finish off verse 24 to 29, right? Which is now how we... Okay, Yudi has a question here. Um, can, we say, can we say that salvation can be lost? Um, so I want to give you the mic, Yudi. What do you think? I think that I would like to hear your own thoughts. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, I think we have touched on this topic a few times, but the reason why we haven't touched on it fully is that it's not the kind of topic we want to do um, very quickly without taking time to establish our reasoning behind it. Um, salvation, as it depends on God, cannot be lost. Salvation, as it depends on God, cannot be lost, right? So God does not, well, we, what we mean by that is God does not change his mind about salvation. If he did, then none of us would be saved because then we will be at the mercy of God's mood swings, as it were. So when God saves you, it's a, it's a legal issue. But the thing about salvation is that salvation is a two-sided contract. And unfortunately, any member of that contract can void that contract. And that is why we have if statements about salvation, because Paul says here, if indeed you continue in the faith. 
So the question then to ask is what happens if you don't continue in the faith, right? And let's not think that these problems are too far-fetched away. In, in contemporary America, we've seen it happening, right? If you go on Twitter and search for a group of people called ex-evangelicals, right? These are people who have literally renounced their faith. So the question is, is God compelled to save someone who has rejected him? And in fact, this whole question is why the entire book of Hebrews was written. And I'm waiting till we get to our study of Hebrews because Hebrews is the book in the Bible that addresses the question. And most of the ifs about salvation are found in that book. And the book was written to the Jews because um, the amount of persecution that those who decided to take the path of Christ in the first, in the first century, especially Jewish people, the amount of persecution they endured was so much. And at some point, they were casting away their confidence. And the writer of Hebrews wrote to them to remind them that if Christ is not who he is, then you can, de you can deny him and nothing happens. But if Christ is the center of the universe, if he is pre the preeminent one, then, okay, let's leave that for, for the book of Hebrews. But um, Yudi, hope you can already pick out what my answer to that question is. Was it clear, Yudi? Okay. So Stephanie, your hand is raised. Can you go? Uh, yes. Uh, you see that first that talks about being blameless. Which one is it again? Uh, that is able to, sorry. Yes, verse 22. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about the people who were in Christ and, you know, that rose in the kingdom and, suddenly you know i won't say should i say and then lost their faith or they fell into one kind of temptation or the other i mean is it okay to as in because when i reflect on those things i'm like should we then turn this into a prayer point is it necessary to pray say oh lord present me holy blameless and i don't know if you understand what i'm trying mm -hmm. to say Mm -hmm. Should this yeah. become a prayer point for us, or is this something that's already done deal? What do you reckon? Yeah, this is this is something that is a done deal. You don't have to pray for Christ to present you blameless, and that's his occupation in heaven, right? He is he is the one that takes care of it. At the end of your life, you see, Paul says that faith is from first to last. I think maybe we should digress a little bit. Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to, for the Jew first and then for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So um, faith to faith here is not like a kind of ladder of faith, as it were. If you read other translations, they capture it better. It says the righteousness of God is revealed um from from first to last it's based that's that's the intention there faith from first to last meaning that you begin with faith and even on your deathbed you have to extend faith towards christ that's why that's why it says the just shall live by faith nobody was supposed to have been called the just if we call it the just it's only it can only be by faith and so if that's how you became the just then that's how you will stay the just it's not by anxiety 
It's not by prayer and fasting. It's not by night vigils, but it's by faith, which is why Jesus um, allowed us to see a glimpse of what how powerful faith is even on someone's deathbed, right? When the thief on the cross turned to him and said to him, remember me, your kingdom. That was all it took. And he said, this day, right? Um, however, what Jesus encourages us to pray for is what he mentioned in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our prayer point should focus on ourselves. Because as long as far as Christ is concerned, he's, he's, he's more than able to present us holy and unblameable. But you see, the same way that we confess, nobody forced us, right? Christ didn't put the words in our mouth and brought it out. He only brought conviction into our souls. And we confess Christ as Lord. Satan, <laughs> situations and circumstances can manipulate our thinking or even darken our thinking so much so that we get to the point where we confess that we, we retract our original confession, which is what the ex-evangelicals are doing. So the focus of our prayers should be on ourselves, that God will, will, will save us from ourselves. No that he will save us from our tendencies. Like Jesus said, deliver us from evil. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, and it should be a restful prayer. In fact, as long as you are at the point where you're even thinking these kind of thoughts, right? And praying these kind of prayers, then <laughs> you are not the kind of person that Hebrews was addressed to. This is another balance that we, that we have to make. Um, Hebrews is addressed to um, to a very specific set of Christians in history, Christians who are in danger of turning their back on Christ because of persecution, which is actually what happened to a number of these people who became ex-evangelicals. They just faced sufficient contradictions in their lives um, that made them turn away from Christ by themselves. Of course, if somebody has not died, right, we cannot say that for sure that the person is completely lost. I don't know if the God is faithful and he has a way of drawing people back to himself. But as he stands right now, they are not Christians and they're still alive. Even though they were once Christians, they don't want to be Christians. This is not a case of they are Christians and they are struggling. That's a completely different thing. They don't want to be Christians. And the thing is, Jesus cannot save you against your will. That's the whole essence of a new creation. Nothing of the old can be in there. So Christ cannot save you against your will because um, genuine love does not, um, does not violate the will of another person, right? If you say you really love someone and the person says no, you respect that aspect of the person's love. Um, yeah, so our prayer points should focus on ourselves. Stephanie, does that make sense? Uh, yeah, thank you for that, George. I mean, you said something that stood out um, that... Um when we make that prayer deliver us from temptation it should be one from the place of rest and i think this is very important because i think it was a few weeks ago i was getting this pressure like oh you are slacking you know you are leaving you know the faith and every message i turned to you're not praying enough you're not fasting enough you're not you know there was just this it just felt like my life was upside i won't say upside down per se but like I was not meeting the mark and so mm. it was not like oh am I going to be 
blameless or is he going to because i wasn't referring to this verse though because there's a similar verse like this in jude yeah and mm -hmm. so i was like oh is this going is this even possible because it just felt like there was just so much pressure like in my, and it's was not coming from external okay it was coming from external but more importantly there was no rest in my spirit you know um but i like that statement you made that it should be from a place of rest exactly it should be always be from a place of rest. you see there's there are more tricky books in the bible like the book of hebrews which is why we decided to start with romans and galatians because those are the books that effectively close the topic of how to be saved and how to be appear blameless before God. And there's no amount of works like we have seen endlessly in those two books that um, you can do that can add to your salvation, right? But you see, that's why Hebrews tells us that a, a babe is someone who is not skillful in the word of righteousness because that person is not able to put together the implications of being justified in Christ but still having a responsibility towards God. So the person prefers to have one or, one or the other. Um, but God's desire is for us to have a, a healthy, balanced view of nothing I do can touch my salvation. Yes, but that's not the question. The question is not, can I do what I want? Um, the question is, why was I saved? What kind of salvation is this? And how can I reciprocate it? It's not how can I, not how can I take advantage of it, okay? Terence, your hand was, was up. Do you, want to, do you want to go? Yeah, so so mine was with with regards to, I mean, was the first statement you mentioned about putting him first, like letting him be in the, like the first person, in, let's say the first person in your life, irrespective of anything that goes on. How do you hold on to that? Like, how do you, how do you ensure that that happens? Okay, thank you, because your question leads us into the final part of Colossians 1, right? So Paul knows that this is the natural follow-up to this question. So he has, we have seen the content of our hope, the author of our hope. We have seen the sufficiency of our, of our hope, which is Christ. And then Terence's question is the final question, right? Which is, how do, how do I work out the mystery of this hope, right? Um, so can you read? Steph, 24 to 29. Verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, for which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. It was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from, the, from ages and from generations, but has now, sorry, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Thank you very much, Stephanie, right? 
So Paul is now showing us how to realize this hope. And this is not a new theme. We looked at it in the first 12 verses last week, right? And we said the first way to realize the hope of the gospel is to, is to, is to learn the will of God, is to make the will of God the center of your life. So Terence, that's the first answer we looked at last week, which we found in verse 9 of this chapter. It says, for this reason, since we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. If you are not filled with the knowledge of the will of God, there is a likelihood <laughs> that your journey of faith may not progress. And when that happens, when your journey of faith is not progressing, you are in danger of falling off completely because you might begin to doubt what you have believed, right? And so that's why Paul wants you to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. So, and we saw last week that the first universal will of God for every believer is your sanctification, your sanctification. If you don't know that God intends for you to be separated and holy towards him, you will not know how to order your life. And if you don't know how to order your life, you're eventually going to turn back because you're going to find that perhaps you believe the lie. And we saw that Paul also said, um, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. So the first way to realize the hope that is in your heart, to make the hope that is in your heart the foundation of your life, the foundation of your outcomes, is to be grounded in the will of God. You see, the reason we, we wake up in the morning and we pray and we study the scriptures is not, I know that it can very easily become a religious activity so that we ask you, like in the SU days, have you read the Bible today? Like the real thing we should be asking you is, have you heard God's voice today? Do you know God's will for your life? Right. And I think I can extend it to say to you that a year is closing. 2021 is closing and the year is not going to come back. Have you invested or are you investing the days in, left in this year to understand the will of God? God, what is your will for my life? You know, what would you have me do next year? What is it about my life that you have me work on? And that's the way to realize the hope of the gospel, that you are filled with the knowledge of the will of God and that you're deliberate about pursuing the will of God. And Paul recognized that there was a reason that he was saved and that he made that reason the center of his life. And the second thing that Paul showed us about actualizing the hope that is in you is that he said, I labored. That's how he ended. So these are the, the two things. First of all, you know the will of God. And secondly, you, you labor. It's important for us to realize that the concept of labor and work um, was corrupted by the fall, which is what makes labor and work hard and painful, right? And it makes it look like <laughs> um, my life of labor. Think about it. What are you laboring at, right? Maybe you're laboring at a PhD or you're laboring at a career. You might think that God is not interested in that activity because it seems very unspiritual to you, <laughs> right? But, but the truth is that without the fall, work existed in the Garden of Eden. There was a garden that God planted east of Eden. And he told Adam that I have employment for you. I have something that's supposed to occupy your creative energies, occupy your downtime, occupy everything about you. It's this garden. I want you to dress it and to keep it, right? And in a sense, there is a garden, like we said earlier, that, that each of us coming into the kingdom of God has come into a context, and in that context, there's a garden that God has assigned to you. And by garden, I mean, there is a path 
There is a pathway. There is a purpose that he has assigned to you. There is something that he has called you to excel in. Now, the problem is that when we read scriptures like this, we over-spiritualize them so that if we don't see ourselves standing on the pulpit, right, and preaching to people and, you know, commanding healings <laughs> to happen, right, if we don't see ourselves doing any of that, then we feel like we've not really begun to explore the will of God for our lives, right? But Paul, when he located the will of God, he labored in it. So I'm here to tell you that that thing that you might call your secular labor, God is very interested in that labor. And he wants you to begin to see that labor as a part of how Christ will be glorified. This is the kind of understanding Paul had so much. He said that I rejoice in my sufferings. So like the question is, do you rejoice in your own labor? What is it that you're laboring at right now? Do you rejoice in it? Or do you only see it as a burden? God wants to change our perspective to see that the workings of Christ in you is supposed to be channeled towards a particular labor that will bring him glory. It doesn't matter if it's a PhD that you're writing, for example, God wants to gain glory from that activity. He wants you to labor in that place until his glory emerges in that little thing that is in your hands. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you because I recognize that this was why I became a minister. This is why I was called. Not everybody's going to be poor. Not everybody's going to write epistles. So don't wait till you also um, become a missionary and you go somewhere before you know you're laboring. That thing that God committed into your hand, that domain that he called you to, let that labor be unto him. Subsequently, Colossians, Paul tells us that whatever it is your hand finds to do. Like we said, the will of God is not concerned with the whatever. That's why he called it whatever your hand finds to do. The will of God is concerned with who is doing it and what he's making out of you through that work that you're doing. So how you do that work matters. That's the hope that God has to call the Gentiles back to himself, that his glory can shine through that labor that is in your hands and bring glory to him at the end of the day. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. So when you find yourself serving, because after Christ has saved you and he has washed you, the next thing he does is that he frees you. He frees you from yourself. He frees you from all the... Um, um, appendages that you came with, all the things that weighed you down. When Christ frees you, he doesn't leave you like that. He introduces you to service. And that service is always to other people. So if you're like a software engineer, for example, you are called to serve in that capacity in your current company. If you labor sufficiently, the glory of God will break out in that place. Right? And then he says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking the afflictions of Christ. I think we've explained this scripture before um, that, do you remember our understanding of this scripture? This is the third scripture that we have had to check that our understanding is right. Because again, it's very easy to conclude from verse 24 that the sufferings of Christ were not sufficient for salvation. And so we have to labor for extra things in salvation. But this is clearly not what Paul is saying. Do you remember how we resolved this? I think it was probably in a study of Romans or Galatians that we came across this verse and we talked about it at, at that time. What does Paul mean that he fills up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church? I'm sure we talked about it because I was the one that asked this question, but I can't remember. 
Sorry, Josh. Okay, no wahala. So, you know, Christ suffered to pioneer salvation. But pioneering salvation was not the end of salvation. That salvation had to be, has to be taken to the ends of the earth. So Christ suffered to pioneer it, and now it's available. However, if you make up your mind that you want to take the word um, of Christ to the ends of the earth, then there are sufferings that you have to submit yourself to. And they may not necessarily be the kind of suffering that you have in mind, like martyr kind of sufferings, even though for the apostles that was the case, you have to fast and pray. <laughs> you know, that's a kind of suffering, just so that the excellency of the glory of God can overflow through your vessel and bless those that you are sent to. It's not about you at that point, right? So it's not that your fasting is adding something to the salvation of Christ, that Christ has pioneered. It's just that for the because Christ is not here to physically declare his own salvation and you are his witness and you are his messenger, it's inevitable that you undergo some kind of suffering to bring that message. You see, the fact that you and I have the gospel today is because some people left the comfort of Britain sometime um, in the early um, 20th century at the threat of malaria. Many of them died on the way. Many of them died when they came. <laughs> but they left all of that and they persevered to ensure that the gospel reached you and I. And that's why in the East, for example, they stopped killing twins. And people like me survived, for example, because some people were willing to lay down their lives. Friends, this is what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to serve. He calls us to serve. Because if we decide not to lay down our lives, the gospel will still spread, but it, it just won't spread through us. But if we decide that the gospel is going to spread through me, then it's not going to be all comfort, right? If you, look, if you think about this Christmas, the comfortable thing to do for all of us is to stay at home, you know, and just have a good time and perhaps enjoy time with our family, which is a very good thing to do. But the moment you decide that, okay, I want to spend this Christmas spreading the message of Christ, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you financially. It's going to cost you, but that's what it takes to spread the word of Christ. So Paul says, I fill up my flesh, what is lacking. When I go somewhere with the gospel, and I experience opposition, it's not time to run away. It's time to fold up my sleeves and labor with God. And like we've seen earlier, Paul is saying that he has a clear understanding of the will of God for his life. Since I understand that this is why God called me, there were many apostles, but for some reason he chose me and he called me to unveil a particular mystery. And it is this mystery that he wants to point you and I to. And this mystery is not just that you are in Christ, which is what he has explained, that through Christ's redemption, you have deliverance from the powers of darkness. He wants you to know that the real mystery of the gospel, the same way that you and I cannot explain, right, how Mary didn't know a man but got pregnant. Don't try to explain exegetically too much this mystery. He says Christ has found a way to dwell in your hearts. This is this is what sets apart the gospel from everything else. So that as much as, for example, we love our Bibles, and it's important that you have your Bible with you and that you read it, just in case you find yourself in a context where there's no Bible, you are not disadvantaged. He says there's, some, there's someone dwelling in you. God has found a way to, to work from the inside of you. And it says that investment of Christ is the hope of glory. 
if you if you read Jesus's comments about the nature of man, especially on the Sermon on the Mount, you know when when he or when some people came to him and said, and we're trying to find out his opinion about divorce, right? That Moses allowed us to divorce on several grounds. What did Jesus say to them? He said Moses permitted you to do all of that because of the hardness of your heart. That's why all of those you know extra conditions had to be added. Your motivation was corrupted by the fall. But now you have a whole new motivation. You have a whole new life. Now think of Christ in you as, as the breath of God. Think of it as the consciousness of God. If you go on the streets, especially in Europe, and ask the average person, you discover that that person is not conscious of God, or at least that person is not conscious of God on the layer that can administer salvation. And the lack of consciousness is a proof of lack of life, right? So if it, is, if it has ever happened to you that you have felt the presence of God, you have felt a certain consciousness of God that is not available on the ordinary plane, that's a proof that you have his life. And that life in you is the hope of glory. And Paul is saying that the way I hope to make men and women mature is that I, I draw their attention back to that investment. Because friends, as amazing as this Bible study is, for example, at 10 o'clock or at the hour, we're going to shut down, right? And we're going to close and everybody goes back to their place and you're going to be left alone. So if, if we're going to raise Christians that are mature, if anyone is going to raise you and I to be mature, their, their teachings have to go away from principles and has to center on the person of Christ. Christ in me is my righteousness. He's my sanctification. He's the reason for my redemption, the reason for my sanctification. He's, he's my wisdom. Every gospel that does not place, or every teaching that does not place the attention of Christ and places on principles is going to make you a very wise person who is without life, who, is, who doesn't know the source of life, so that it's going to make you dependent as it were, at the very best, so that your faith shakes when that dependence is removed. You know, we have that problem, right, that a lot of people leave Africa or Nigeria and come to Europe and lose their faith because the way that kind of faith was, was, was raised was that it was raised to be very dependent. Of course, there is a principle of interdependence in the body of Christ, so none of us can actually survive on ourselves, right? But the foundation of the teaching that matures believers is the investment of Christ. Let nobody rob you of that investment. Let nobody threaten you with, <laughs> if you have not fasted X number of days, then you're not serious. Always turn back to that investment. Let your fasting flow from that investment. Let your praying flow from that investment. And how did Paul realize the hope of glory? That's what verse 29 says. It says, to this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works mightily in me, which works in me mightily. So this is, this is a practical example of what Christ in you does. He says, there's something at work in me. There's someone at work in me. I may not always be conscious of that working, but whenever it is, I pay attention to it. Something is rumbling in my spirit. And what Paul's response to that activity inside of him is that he, he gives it expression through labor. So I don't know what it is that you're laboring with. Like I said earlier, if it's something academic or something career related or whatever. 
that is actually where God wants you to channel the rumbling of Christ inside of you. Don't look away from that thing that is in your hands and begin to look for, you know, external means of showing, of showing that Christ is alive in your spirit. Allow the wisdom of God, allow the power of God that is rumbling inside of you to be directed towards that thing that you're doing. And watch how amazingly God can blow up that thing that you're doing and use it for his own glory. Friends, it is the will of God for us to labor. We must, we must arise against passive Christianity. You know, the kind of Christianity that just sits back and just wants things to happen. Christ energizes us to labor. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that when I began, I was the least of the apostles, meaning that if you want to look at talent, um, connections, like I was not in the picture, but something happened. I labored more than all of them, but it was not me who was laboring. An ability was at work in me. So know how to find the fire that is inside of you. Know how to find the glory that is inside of you. You know, know how to connect to that fire, how to connect to that glory and, and allow it to inspire your labor. Allow it to inspire your efforts. Don't try to separate your life into finance, um, spiritual, um, academic. <laughs> allow it to be one thing. Allow Christ to give everything his reference. Allow Christ to give everything his meaning. And the same way God was able to find glory through the life of Paul, he will find glory through your own life. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.